are continuing uh, in our series that is called The Not-So-New Way. All right, and this is actually, we're coming up on the end of this here. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 27 is where we are going to be. All right, Acts chapter 27. And I am not actually going to spend a lot of time reading this today. Uh, I am going to kind of paraphrase a lot of the story as we go here. But I think it's good for people to be able to follow along as we do that. So we're going to be in Acts 27. And this is our second to last week in this series, in the book of Acts. All right, we have followed the story of what has happened with Jesus' followers after he left. Uh, and I, I've loved this. I've loved this series. It has changed the way I think of the early church and really the struggles that they faced. Okay, and so let's just be ready and expectant that God has something for each and every one of us today. Uh, every time we open his word, we should expect to be changed by it. Right? Like, we don't just open up the Bible and say, I'm going to read this and that's going to be it. Instead, we open up his word and we say, all right, God, I want to be changed. I, I, want to be, I want to be different because of what you speak to me today. So let's just kind of be ready for that. If you would, would you stand with me? I'm going to open us in prayer. If you're able to stand, if you're not, that's totally fine. I'm going to open in prayer and then we will dive into uh, this passage today. God, we just pray, Lord, that... Uh, God, that we would see this with fresh eyes. Lord, that we wouldn't think that we have learned everything and we know everything going on. But God, instead, we would know that, that we have so much to learn. And we have so many areas that we can become more like you. And we pray that that would happen. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. We finished last week with the Apostle Paul going uh, before a bunch of different courts and being tried uh, on some false accusations that people had brought against him. Uh, and, and through this, he had actually spent over two years appearing before a people and, and never getting an answer, right? Have you guys ever dealt with anything, uh, we'll even say like with the government, and it just takes a little bit longer than you feel like it should? Yeah, okay, like every single thing, like, okay, I'm going to call somebody about this, or I mean, I'll tell you right now, anything with the IRS, you're just like, all right, well, hopefully this will get figured out in the next six years. You know, and that's just kind of how life goes. And, and, and so, so Paul is being drugged before these different courts. He has the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish court. He's going before governors. Uh, he put, he's put in prison for two years during this process, and he keeps showing up before them, and they don't give him an answer. And, and by the end of this, uh, Paul is kind of just getting frustrated. And now it's easy to think this. Paul is someone who is traveling. He is a missionary. Uh, he wants to be out there. He wants to be sharing the gospel with people. He wants to be planting churches. Like, that's his heart. And it's easy to look at this and say, you sat in jail for over two years. This must have absolutely just squelched, like, anything that was happening with God's plan. But the reality is, is during this time, and during his time in, of imprisonment, even in Rome, that is why we have the New Testament that we have. 
Paul is using this time. He's there. He's actually able to meet with friends. People are able to come in and talk with him. And he is writing these letters to churches that he has planted or have started. And he, he is uh, communicating back and forth with them. He is able to send out communication, receive communication. And we have the Bible that we have because of it. And the reality is, is yes, it'd be great for Paul to be planting churches. But I think that his impact has gone on way longer and been much greater because of these letters that he wrote. And I love that. It's so good to see that. Because this, this is like a theme that we have through the book of Acts here, is that nothing can stop God's plan from moving forward. St. Paul, uh, Paul appears to Caesar, all right, he's going to be, he appeals to Caesar and he says, all right, if you're not going to give me an answer in these courts, this has gone on long enough, I am a Roman citizen I want you to ship me off to the highest court possible, and they will hear my case. And this is kind of twofold. A little bit of that is I want to move this forward, but a lot of it is Jesus has told him, you will go to Rome, and you will preach the gospel there. And Paul sees this perfect opportunity, basically say, hey, you can pay my way to Rome, then I don't have to. And he says, I appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, and they are going to send him off to Rome. And that's where we are today. All right. Now Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He goes into quite a bit of detail on this part of Paul's journey. Okay, And, and like many times in first century writing, there is some imagery that is happening here. Okay, Paul's setting sail out onto the ocean, uh, onto the water, and water has some specific symbolism in Jewish culture. Okay, Like I, I absolutely hate the ocean. Um, it's one of those things that terrifies me because I just don't know what's in the ocean. Like a lake, I can go look up on a website and, and it'll tell me what the DNR is stocked in that lake, what fish are in there. The ocean, we got no idea. There's so much that hasn't even been explored. Like we all laugh at movies like Godzilla, but who knows? Like it, it, the ocean terrifies me. All right, and, and so, but here's what I found out, like, as I'm studying this, like, the, the Jewish culture really kind of had a little bit of a similar uh, approach, all right? So Paul is setting out on the ocean here, and, and in this writing, Luke is actually kind of making the sea as its own character in this story. Okay, and this will happen every once in a while. Like, we have all the characters that are people, but he's actually kind of setting this up where the sea, in a way, is kind of seen as something. We're going to talk about that at the, at the end today as well. But Jews were not a seafaring race. Okay, like the Greeks, they were never happier than they're just like out on their boats and traveling. And, and the Egyptians, they, they traveled. The Jewish people, they really did not travel. And to the Jews, the sea uh, had this imagery of almost like a monster. Like it was, it was an enemy. It, was, it, it had this this whole thing around it, all right? And so you think of the creation story and how the dark, chaotic waters were there at the beginning. Genesis 1-1, like right there, there, you have these dark, chaotic waters before God comes on the scene. You have Noah and the flood, right? Like we see water as this, throughout the Bible, as, as this adversary, almost, that is there. And so you have Noah and the flood. You have Moses and the parting of the Red Sea and bringing people through that water. Okay, you have Jonah and the storm that happens and he gets tossed overboard and eaten. In Daniel's vision, in the book of Daniel, uh, it says that, that there's this great beast that comes up out of the sea. 
right? Because that's where it would come from. To them, they look at the sea and it's this mysterious, dark, foreboding, almost kind of evil thing. But Paul was actually used to hopping on ships. He had been traveling around for quite some time. Uh, At this time, it actually says, like, at this time of his life, he had already been shipwrecked three times. Okay, you could not pay me to get back on a ship if I had been shipwrecked three times. Paul, he's just, he's, he's all too happy to get back out there, right? So Paul knew that the sea served as a, a potential great enemy, like even as he's doing this, uh, but lived believing that the Messiah had defeated all enemies. And I think in his mind, this included the sea. Like as he's moving forward, he sees that the Messiah has conquered all. So Luke is going to tell this portion of the story, uh, but he is putting specific weight on the idea that the ocean is almost another character in this story, and it is something that must be overcome by Paul on his journey. All right, so Julius, a Roman centurion, is in charge of getting Paul and some other prisoners to Rome, uh, and he doesn't have some specific prison ship that he loads them on. He basically has to travel about 1,500 miles with these prisoners in a way via like public transportation of just kind of chartering his own things, all right? And they go from port to port on the first ship that they get on and they reach Myra, all right? And there's a map that's going to be behind me kind of showing like the first part of this journey where they're going, all right? Uh, Then Julius decides to get onto a ship that is heading to Italy. That's where they keep Rome, all right? They set out to sea, but we're having some difficulty, and the passage gives us some clues to the time of year that this was happening, all right, when, when Paul was traveling. The typical sailing season was essentially Pentecost or like kind of May or June until about five days after their celebration of atonement. Like they often marked things throughout the year based off of their celebrations that they had. Okay, so what that means um, is that the Romans, they, they considered that sailing after like September 15th was incredibly dangerous, okay, and probably shouldn't really be attempted, like ships should be looking at coming in, all right, and they actually, if you were out sailing into like November, like they, they for some reason had a date, like November 11th, if you sail after that, like it's, it's suicidal, okay, and we know this, like you can't go out in the ocean at certain times of the year, like it just is going to end poorly, so when they hit this area called Fair Havens, they were at the end of the sailing season, That's what Acts 27 tells us. They are past the day of atonement. Like they should be looking for cover and heading in. All right, ships would find a place to dock and they would then have to winter there until the next sailing season. And you would kind of be stuck. So Paul gets up and he says this to the entire crew. He says, I don't think we should keep going. We should stop and winter here. All right, and that meant spending months where they were, waiting for the next shipping season. The problem is, is that where they were was not a great place to winter, all right? All of the wind would hit this area hard. Probably isn't a very big city, like there's not a lot of accommodations for you and 276 people, that's how many people were on the ship, to winter there for months. So the sailors want to try a little further. They want to make it to Phoenix, they say, because it's a better place to winter. They start going for it, but before too long, a hurricane basically type storm, comes from the island out towards them and pushes them. And now they are just trying to figure out what can we do. 
And what happens here is they get swept out, uh, and instead of going a little further down the shore for a better place to winter, um, they, they kind of duck behind this little island, reinforce their ship, try to make it to Phoenix, and the wind pushes them out, and they end up all the way across the, the massive sea over by the island of Malta. All right, so you can see, like, that little area over there that says Fair Havens and that little spot. Like, they were trying to just move from one spot on that island to another. They missed it by quite a bit. All right, they get pushed out into the sea. And this, as you can guess, this was not the time they should be sailing. This was a rough journey. They had lowered anchors hoping to slow the ship down uh, as the winds just moved it along, tossed it back and forth. They started tossing cargo overboard on the ship. All right, and, and that's how the, the sea captain here, that's how he's making money. This is a cargo ship. He's going to make his money off of what he's delivering to Rome. And at this point, he's like, it's not even worth it. I don't care about the money. Toss everything over. We just need to try and live at this point. Like, if we keep this cargo, our ship is going to sink. So they toss that over. All right? Now, when you do that, it leaves you with just your sailing equipment. And this equipment has helped to... It helps you sail efficiently. It's everything that you need. So you have your ropes, you have extra sails, uh, the heavy main yard, all these things. And this is called the tackle. All right. And essentially, they start to throw the tackle overboard. At this point, everything they need to sail is overboard. And they're like, we are just hoping that the wind pushes us into a good direction. Like we are just trying to survive. And it says they gave up hope of being saved. So they are at sea. They aren't eating because of how worried they are. Uh, Paul decides to get up and tell the whole ship, I told you so. He has this little speech. All right, notice that tact is not one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul lists off. Because I don't think he had it. All right, and he gets up and he's like, I told you all we shouldn't be sailing. But because you numbskulls decided to go, here we are. And he kind of has this little speech that he does uh, with them. But he says, don't worry. Even though this is a bad situation, we have sustained lots of damage. No one will die. No one is going to die. But the ship will be destroyed. An angel of the Lord gave me this message last night. Now that's sort of good news. Uh, no one's going to die. But he also said that the ship is going to be destroyed. That's not good news. All right, so they just keep getting tossed about. It's been two weeks now since they were pushed off course. The sailors feel like they are getting close to land. They let down sounding weights, basically to check the depth. They let it down at a certain depth. They bring them back up. A little bit later, they let them down again, and it has come significantly up. At this point, they get worried. They're like, we are moving. We are going to run aground. We are going to crash because of this. Okay, and because they are worrying about crashing, uh, they put out four anchors, and then the sailors, they want to secretly escape. They're like, we don't care about everybody else on this ship. We need to get out of here. And Paul tells the guards, he says, unless everybody stays on board, we won't survive. So the guards, they trust Paul enough, they walk over and they cut off the lifeboat and send it out. I mean, that takes a lot of faith right there. Obviously, at this point, they are putting their trust into Paul. Paul then sort of takes charge. He says, you are constantly worrying. The past two weeks, you haven't eaten. 
because of just this anxiety that, that is all around you. He says, everyone will be fine, but eat. You need to gain your strength. Paul takes bread and gives thanks and breaks it. All right, which is, which is kind of like this little picture of him almost doing communion with everybody. These are the same words that we see within communion. And he says, you need to eat. You need to regain your strength. He breaks bread, passes it out. They eat, and then they toss the rest of the grain overboard. Because they're just trying to get everything off the ship that they can. All right? And, and again, there's 276 people on board of this ship. It is not a small group. The next morning, they can see a sandy bay and decide to try and run the ship into the bay. They cut the anchors off, and they're like, the wind is going to push us in there, and the ship is probably going to break apart, but we're going to get into the bay, run it up on the sand, and hopefully we all live. All right? Uh, but they ran into some type of sandbar, and the, and the front of the ship has hit the sandbar. The back of the ship, if you've ever been near a bay, you have all these waves coming in, and the back of it's getting hit over and over and over, and the ship starts to break apart. It is obvious that, that they are not going to make it into the bay. So at this point, the soldiers, they say, hey, we can't let any of these guys escape. If they escape, we will be killed. That's how Rome worked. We see that throughout the New Testament. You know, when someone escaped prison, the jailer tries to, like, kill himself. And Peter's like, please, please don't. We haven't left. And so they're like, let's just kill everybody. But because of the relationship that Paul had with the centurion, he says, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, anybody that can swim, jump in and swim. If you can't swim, there are chunks of the ship in the water. Grab one of those and float in. I mean, this is, this is kind of like a last-ditch effort um, that they are, they are nervous about, all right? Now, once they get to shore, they find out that they're on the island of Malta, all right? They went so far from where they had intended to go. Now, this sort of seems like a unique story to go into great detail on at the end of the book of Acts. This is the second-to-last chapter of the book of Acts, all right? Paul does not preach the gospel, the centurion is not reported to begin following Jesus. There isn't any obvious miracle of any type. There's not, you know, Paul giving like strong correction to a church or something. I think if, if we don't look at the bigger picture here, uh, we run the, the risk of thinking that Luke sort of slowed down and ran out of stories at the end of the book here, and he just details a lot of this for no reason. Like when you stop and think about what's in the book of Acts, everything we've read, all the meaning that it's had, the stories that we've seen, what is this doing here with this much detail? It doesn't progress a lot of the story that we've seen. And we need to look at the bigger picture. Well, up until this point in the book of Acts, we've seen the apostles in direct confrontation with people. Everything has been on a personal level. Whether that's Christians in the early church, the Jewish leaders that are around them, the Roman leaders that they interacted with, uh, random people that Paul met on his journeys, it's been all these interactions. It's been very personal and showed the gospel interacting on a personal level. All right? But what we haven't seen in Acts is the bigger picture. Like, think about this there is evil that is in the world, there is a bigger battle that is happening than just the personal confrontations in day-to-day -day life. For you and I, we have daily struggles, each one of us. 
We have things that are difficult for us. We have bills that have to get paid. We have cars that we have to try and keep running. We have coworkers uh, that we have confrontation with. We have family relationships that take lots of work. All sorts of things that are difficult, okay? But then there's the bigger idea that, that there, is, there is evil in our world. Okay, when we walk away from just the, the small idea of what is in my life, there's pain and suffering. There are difficulties that are bigger than just us. There are injustices that, that honestly seem too big to confront just ourselves. And in this story, what we see with Paul is that Paul is taking on the sea. Paul's taking on the big enemy. And the sea is treacherous and it hits hard and it throws all that it has. But in the end, God's plan moves forward and triumphs. And if that doesn't come across clear for us, because I think lots of times we miss that imagery, uh, once they land at Malta, they start grabbing sticks and making a fire. And just like how the sea is a picture of an adversary, uh, there are other things that embody the same type of imagery throughout Scripture. And, and the one that might be on the same level as the sea, or even greater, would be the serpent. Again, go back to creation. Like We see this, this idea that the serpent is this imagery that is there. And Paul is gathering wood to burn on the island of Malta when they get there, and he picks up wood, and a poisonous snake bites him on the hand. And it actually says, like, he's standing there and it's hanging off of him. <laughs> and, and the people that live on Malta, they look and they see this poisonous snake. And they're like, oh, he must be a murderer. They know he's a prisoner. You know, he's there with guards. Must be a murderer. The sea didn't get him. But justice wouldn't let him live. A poisonous snake got him in the end. And Paul shakes the snake off into the fire. And they wait for him to swell up and die. And nothing happens. And when we see the imagery in this story of what Luke is doing, you can see this kind of one, two, like, okay, if you didn't get it with the sea, do you see this idea that, that Paul is not like Paul, this character. Paul is, is embodying the idea of the gospel moving forward. And when the serpent tries to stop the gospel from moving forward, the serpent, in the end, gets shaken off into the fire and destroyed. And the gospel moves forward. Isn't that amazing? I love the Bible. Like as I dig into the Bible, like there are things that we just, we read them and we take them at surface value. But there is so much more that is there. So much more. Now I want to give us some things to reflect on this morning quickly here. The first thing is this. We need to remember that God has a big plan with his creation. And that plan will not be derailed by anything. All right? From the beginning, he started this project. He wanted to build his beautiful creation, and then he wanted to share it with us. He wanted us to rule with him. But he gave us a choice as to whether we wanted to partner with him or try to take control and do it our own way. And we chose, instead of partnering with him, to do it ourselves. Oftentimes, I sit there, and you read the beginning, and you're like, what is wrong with you? Why did you make that choice? I never would have made that choice. Come on, just don't eat the fruit. The reality is, is I have that same choice every single day. And every single day I wake up and I can choose to partner with God 
and move in his direction where he's going, or I can choose that I think I know better and I'll do it myself. And the reality is that every single one of us, probably daily, in some moment or another, choose to do it ourselves. That's what we do. The good news is, despite me choosing my own selfish way all the time, God's project will keep moving forward. It will. But I do have a choice if I want to be part of that project, if I want to be used in it, if I want to help speed it along, and that's what God wants. He has always chosen to partner with us. No matter how many times we fail him, no matter how many times I fail him, he still chooses me. So the second piece that we need to know and understand is this. We have the opportunity to be part of completing God's project. You have that opportunity, but it's an opportunity, and that's it. And you get to choose whether you take it or not. Every day I wake up, and I have this opportunity. Every single day. Jesus has laid out ways for us to live that will be in harmony with God's plan. And yes, I will fall short, but every day he gives me another chance and another opportunity. I love that. And the last part is this. We already know what the ending of the project looks like. And we know that he will complete it. Like these three big ideas, I think are important for us to remember and to remind ourselves of. This matters. The way I live my life, if I keep these things in mind, it will be different because of that. This is part of what is being communicated by Luke at the end of this book. Yeah, there might be a big enemy out there. You might have daily struggles. There might be issues far bigger than you, but God has already defeated them. And we keep moving forward with that knowledge in mind. There is nothing that will stop God's plan. The question is, are you going to be part of it? Will you be someone who actively moves it forward, or are you going to be left on the sidelines? Why don't we stand together as we close today? I also think that, you know, the, the, these are big, big picture ideas here that are good to remind us of. I do think that as we look at this story, there are some very basic, practical things for us to pull out today. And I want to quickly do that with us. Paul was told by God to stay on the ship. That had to be terrifying. But God said, if you stay on the ship, I will take care of you. Maybe God has asked you to stay on some ship that is in your life. It could be a friendship that continues to be difficult. It has caused so much stress in your life, but God is telling you to stay with it. He has a bigger plan. It could be a job that you are working and you are so sick of it, but God has told you don't abandon the ship. And again, I'm saying maybe God has told you this. I'm not saying that every single ship is one that we're supposed to stay on. But there are times where God has spoken to you and you're like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to. 
It'd be so much easier to change and to go and do this. And God is saying, no, this is where I have you for a reason. Maybe there's a marriage that you're in. And I want to reiterate, this is if God is telling you to stay on that ship. All right? I think, unfortunately, there have been times where people have felt guilty that they've had to stay in an abusive relationship because the church has said, you need to make this relationship work. I am, I am not saying that in that instance today. Okay, that's... If there's abuse in a relationship, that is, that is not a ship that you are supposed to stay on. But maybe God has told you it's just been difficult and you don't know what to do and God is saying... I want you to stay on this. I want you to make it work. I want you to make it work. Maybe God has given you a purpose or a mission in life. He's spoken to you at some point and said, you are going to do this. And that was years ago. And you've tried. You've tried to move forward in that area. And it hasn't worked. And you don't know what else to do. And you say, God, you called me to do this. You spoke to me. You said this is going to happen in my life. Why isn't it happening? And it's so easy for us to get impatient and to say, hey, you know what? That ship over there, that seems to be moving faster and quicker. Let's get on that one. And God's saying, no, trust me. If I called you to this, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we need to just trust him in those moments. And you know what? Your ship might get beaten up. There might be waves crashing against it. It might be breaking apart. Here's the thing. God can get you to your destination, whether your ship is intact or in pieces. You might get to your destination just hanging on to a piece of driftwood of what used to be your ship. But we're called to just trust him in those moments if he has called us to do that. I think that there, there's something else that this ship can kind of represent for us. Maybe you have actually just been struggling with faith in God in general. Maybe this is a new struggle or this has been years in the making and you're questioning everything. I don't know if this is real. I don't know what's going on. And there, there's, there's a, a huge group of people in our world right now Specifically, a lot of people about my age that are going through something that, that they kind of have dubbed deconstructing their faith. All right? Now, for lots of people, that actually, what they mean when they say that is they've just thrown a hand grenade in the middle of their faith and it's blowing up and they've walked away. And they really, they're saying, I'm deconstructing my faith. I don't, I don't know what I believe anymore. And they walk away. That's not what actual deconstruction is. Deconstruction is a good thing. It implies intentionally taking something apart kind of piece by piece. I would argue that if, if, if any of us say that we don't have everything completely figured out, we should be deconstructing our faith. That's how we grow. We take pieces where we maybe have gotten things wrong and we replace them with stronger, better beliefs. Like, think about this. The, the disciples, they went through a three-year deconstruction process. Because when they met Jesus, they had all these ideas about their Jewish faith. And over the next three years, they slowly pulled pieces off of what they thought it meant to follow Yahweh. 
And then they built it back together so much stronger than what it ever was. That's what deconstruction is. Questioning what we believe is not bad. That is actually a good thing. But it's a good thing when we question it and we seek answers and we dig in and we press for those answers and we know how to do it and we surround ourselves with the right people. That is a positive, good thing. It's actually a sign of, of maturity in teenagers. Like as, when I was serving as a youth pastor for years, you would see kids begin to not just accept things because their parents told them and they'd start to ask the question, well, why do I believe that? And that was a golden moment. That was beautiful because that's how we make something our own. And in those moments, the church is called to come alongside and to equip people to have the necessary resources and the idea of how to actually ask questions and find answers. The problem is, is we've spent way too many years force-feeding, spoon-feeding people, this is what you believe, and never going into why. And they go out into the world and everything falls apart and they don't know how to make sense of it. If you find yourself right now in, in, in your walk with God questioning a lot of things, I want to encourage you, you're in a good spot. That's not bad. Don't let that drive you away from a community that wants to help you answer those questions. And as the community, let's not just start force-feeding people a bunch of answers that maybe we don't even know why we believe it. Do you know that the younger generation, they said this, there was a study, and someone had said this, they said it's, it's not that, that the younger generation looks, looks at us and says, I don't believe what they believe. They look at us and they say, I don't think they believe what they say they believe. Because they aren't living it. You say you believe this, but you're living a different way. Obviously you don't. Why is that worth following? I want to just, I want to take a moment here. I want us to just kind of where you're at. You can close your eyes if you want. You don't need to. I want you to make a little spot where you can connect with God. Where are you at in this today? What does God have for you? What steps do you need to take? It's not enough just to hear things. How are we putting this into practice? What does this look like this afternoon? What does this look like tomorrow morning? I want us to close with just, Tyr, if we can just sing just the chorus of, of available. And I think as we're just kind of reflecting on this, I want us to sing this out, and, but I, I want you to sing it out if you mean it. And yeah, I'm gonna fall short. I'm gonna fail at times. I'm not gonna be fully available, but I'm gonna try. And if that's where you're at, and as we look at this and we look at the big picture and we say, God, I want to move the gospel forward. I want to be part of this. 
Let's just sing this chorus out a couple times here and then I'm going to close this in prayer. So let's do this together. God, I pray right now as, as each one of us is going through this process, Lord, as we are trying to hear your voice, Lord, we want to follow you. God, I pray that we would start by just making ourselves available. We want to be part of your plan of moving this project forward. God, we know what the end looks like. We want to have that in our sights. We want to move in that direction. Lord, we want to actively be participating in this. So God, speak to us, not just now, but this week. That we would make our ears available to you at any moment. God, as we're going about our life, as we're going to work, that you would guide us, you would lead us, you would speak to us. Because we want to be part of your plan. God, I pray for those in the room that are maybe struggling with their faith, that they're at that spot. God, I pray that they would feel a release uh, of any like guilt or tension that's surrounding that and they would just actively ask those questions, that they would feel free to do that. God, but that it would lead to this digging in and going deeper and truly looking for answers to those questions. Jesus, we pray that you would be with us. God, bless our time together as we just spend uh, quality time as a, as a family of, uh, of God at this picnic together, Lord. We, we just pray over that as well. We ask this in your name. Amen.